Welcome. You're listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. I am your host, John Marchalero, and this week my guest is Dr. Kiki Sanford. Her ninth Hello. Hi, Kiki. Oh, my, my ninth appearance. I'm glad someone's keeping track. Ninth appearance in five years. You are one of my favorite guests. I love getting to come here and talk with you about science and technology, and it's all the fun stuff in my world. Yeah, I think the listeners enjoy it, too. I pick out things from your recent shows that I think are interesting. But for the listeners, first I want to read your introduction, glorious as it is. Dr. Kiki Sanford is a neurophysiologist with a Ph.D. from the University of California. Early in her career, she obtained her bachelor's degree in conservation biology, a field that covers animals their environment, and how humans impact them. Today, she's a very popular science communicator and creator and host of This Week in Science, the podcast and radio show. This is her ninth, as I said, this is her ninth appearance on Background Mode. Happy to have you with me to talk about science and geek out. Let's start with COVID-19 in the first half of the show. All right, let's do it. All right, so I ticked off some items that I saw in your recent shows that were discussed that some people maybe are unsure about or want to hear more about. And the first one I thought about is mask theory. There seems to be a lot of confusion about masks, what kind of mask to wear, and what a mask does. Let's explore that. Yeah, so uh, a lot of confusion came from the fact that the World Health Organization and the CDC did not recommend mask wearing for uh, a, a very long period of time at the beginning of this of this pandemic. And part of the reason was that there was a mask shortage. The best masks to wear to protect yourself and to protect others are these so-called N95 or more highly rated masks. The masks um, are able to block or grab onto much smaller particles of things, bits of things in the air. And they are produced in China, and China is where this pandemic got this got its start, and they started using all the masks, and um, other countries around the world, some of them and hospitals have their own stockpiles, but there just weren't enough. And as the disease began to spread around the world, Health, health officials realized that there was going to be a problem. And to be able to protect healthcare workers, they needed to make sure that the public didn't go crazy like they did for toilet paper and cause a run on the supply of masks. And so as a result, they didn't recommend the wearing of masks. But data came out that surgical masks, which are not as highly rated as the N95 type masks, are are still useful. And more and more research amassed that it's beneficial to others, not necessarily to yourself, but That's it's beneficial. Yes, it's key. beneficial. When you wear a cloth mask or an ordinary surgical mask, you're protecting others. Yeah, it blocks the the spread of anything that you might have in your air that you're exhaling out into the environment. It stops it from spreading as far. And and that's really the key. It's more of a, a physical block to the expulsion of air from your body. Right. It keeps uh, those respiratory yeah. droplets from blowing into the atmosphere, swirling around other people. 
Yeah. And since this virus especially uh, is known to have asymptomatic spread or at least pre-symptomatic spread where people might have it, but they don't realize it because they don't have a sore throat. They don't have shortness of breath. They don't have a sniffling nose or whatever symptoms uh, they, they, they happen, they will happen to get. And they're wandering around like everything's fine, but instead they're spreading the virus to people. And so if everyone wears masks when they leave their house, when they go out into public into, I mean, really important, it's where gatherings of people are or indoor public spaces like grocery stores, post offices, places like like that where you're going to be near other people and can't potentially socially, physically distance yourself right. from them. The mask is recommended at this point in time. You used a couple of new terms, pre-symptomatic and asymptomatic. Can you define those for us? Asymptomatic is when you have a viral infection, but there are no symptoms whatsoever, and so you contagious. never show symptoms. But you, but you are a carrier. Exactly, yeah. can be can be contagious. Pre-symptomatic is, as I mentioned, that period of time where you're infected and the virus is just doing its thing in your body, but your immune system hasn't resulted in symptoms. So you are you are in that period of time before symptoms actually make their make their show make their showing, and you are pre-symptomatic. And then symptomatic is you've got the symptoms. You're you've got a fever. You've got a cough. You've got these things, um, and you're aware that you have an infection. I think the misunderstanding of the mask theory leads people to make a wrong decision about wearing a mask. If they yeah, think I mean, that they're immune or they think that there's no danger or they assess the risk to be low, they say, I'd rather not wear a mask because I don't think I'm in any danger. And I that think tells other been, people that you're yeah. not concerned about their health, in fact. And I think this is a problem with the communication surrounding uh, this virus. In A lot of it came from not knowing whether this virus had an asymptomatic spread for a while. We really were un uncertain about that for quite a while. Mm -hmm. And that led to people not really thinking about that period of time. And everybody, not I mean, I'm not going to say everybody, but a large number of people are not thinking about that potential that they might have a virus that they are accidentally spreading to others, they're more likely to think of getting the virus from somebody else. And so if we turn that perspective around and start the conversation around, okay, let's just, you don't know if you, you don't know if you have it or you don't, you may have very mild symptoms that don't really feel like much. Maybe they just feel like allergies. But you really right. have no way of knowing whether you have this virus or not until you get tested. And you couldn't and, get tested for a long time unless you were severely yes. symptomatic. Wouldn't it right. be nice if there was like a at-home test kit where you could get the results in 60 seconds, you know, just put a swab in your mouth or something and put it into a little box and it comes back and lights up and says yes or no. It would be, so great. would be so great. Because then you'd know <laughs> if you needed to be careful about infecting others. 
And 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 companies have been developing these tests. Uh, they've been trying to come up with tests that are uh, specific and sensitive that can let you know quickly whether or not uh, you have the virus. Um, but we really haven't been able to get to the point where it's it's easy yeah. to get tested here in the United States yet, which is really unfortunate. Yeah. Another article you wrote about was the, or you referenced, was the value of lockdowns. It's becoming pretty clear now that lockdowns really, really help. And yet, I can't discern any difference between the strategies and practices in Europe and the United States. But Europe is on a steady case decline, and the United States is not. Do you have any insights into what's going on there? The, 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 you know, people are hypothesizing that it's because we are not uh, engaging in as much physical distancing that people are, uh, that there's been such uh, miscommunication or disorganization of communication. Our country has not had a very solidified communication plan around how to respond to the virus in the last few months, in the last month at least, since about uh, the beginning of May. And since mid-April, there's been a push to reopen, a push for people to go back to work. Um, our country does not have a, uh, a healthcare safety net like Europe, much of Europe does. And as a result, there is people not just the not just the government officials, but people want to go back to work so that they can pay their rent, their mortgages, feed their families. They're they're wanting to get back out there, but there hasn't been a consistent set of instructions on how to approach that safely here in the United States. I don't think that we've done a great job in telling people to wear masks, to physically distance, to use good hygiene. It is and and that is part of the problem. We also have uh, political aspects in the country that lead people to not really respond well to being told what to do. And uh, and so there is, you know, there are, and, and, and between the different states, there have been different responses because uh, the federal government kind of let it, uh, left it to the governors of states to lead what, how each state would respond. And so it really depends on the, the politics of those places and those people We're as to how right the now. messaging has happened. Yeah. We're seeing that I now. Mean, like about 20 states are on the increase and about 20 states are on the decrease. It's interesting. It is very interesting. Um, you know, it's really unfortunate. And I, I feel that it's a disservice to the American people that that messaging has not been more consistent to help help really save lives and to also allow the discord around misinformation and uncertain uncertainty related to the virus to spread because it it really is endangering lives. We are going to see way more people die than need to. But there are so many unknowns, too. I mean, when yeah. you go state by state, there's different economic conditions, different Absolutely. food supply, different cultural habits and patterns, different yep. commerce, different uh, economic groups, uh, different diet, uh, different blood types, maybe. Um, right. There's so many different factors. And mm -hmm. um, it's hard to figure out 
exactly what the governors are doing that's succeeding and what they're doing that's failing. Yeah. At the beginning of all of this, there was, you know, the the push to flatten the curve and that message worked very well. And even in some places where uh, the the state governments didn't say stay home, where there, where there was no lockdown, people actually made the choices themselves to stay home and to physically distance, yeah. which was which was great. And it's this sign that people will act for the you know, for the good of our society, if if they see the need for it. Um, but at the beginning, all of everything, there were people who were um, against the, the lockdown because of concerns for the economy and people's mental health, which are very fair concerns. But uh, uh, many epidemiologists went on record as saying, okay, we're going to do the lockdowns and we've made these predictions that there are going to be X number of deaths. And if the lockdowns happen and if social distancing happens, we are not going to get there because we will flatten the curve. And it's, we're going to see a lot less of an impact on the health, on, on, on our health infrastructure. And then they said, and I bet if that actually happens, at the when we're when we're in the middle of all this, people are going to say, "Why did we have the lockdowns? We didn't need it. We didn't have any impact on our health infrastructure." And that's exactly what has happened. Now people are wondering, "Why did we have the lockdowns? There was no issue. New York State, New Jersey, those were the big issues. But really, around the country, the the public health infrastructure is fine. Why did we stay home? Why did we impact the economy? And the actual, the reality is. If people stayed home, we acted for the good of society, and it worked. I saw a reference to an article that said that there would have been a whole lot more cases in the United States if we hadn't gone through the lockdown in late March and early April. Hundreds of thousands. Millions of more people. Millions, right. Millions of more cases, but hundreds of thousands more dead. Right. I mean, it's it's hard to imagine what it would have been like, and I'm I am thankful that it 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 wasn't like that that it isn't like that. Although I am concerned uh, for where things are going to go from here. You referenced a study that found that individuals with type A blood were more susceptible to severe respiratory failures, and type O people seem to have some protection. I didn't know that. That's very interesting. That explains why some people get it and have it bad and some people don't. I never understood that. It's part of it. I mean, it's, uh, you know, this is, it's, it's all risk, right? It's what, what is going to benefit or, uh, or, or be a problem. And uh, so it seems as though these chromosomal, uh, mutations, these chromosomal differences, variations, lead to some people, yeah, being more likely to get really sick. I mean, another aspect of that is male. Um, If you are male, you are more likely than women to get really sick, not to get infected, but to get really sick. Uh, And this is another interesting aspect. And people are looking into uh, estrogen and testosterone as aspects of, um, of how the 
viral infection is controlled in the body or how the immune system responds to it. So we've got blood type, we've got um, we've got the receptors on the cells that the uh, virus actually attaches to as it infects the cells, and we've also got uh, got sex determination that has something to do with it as well. I'll bet they're going to find out that the diet has something to do with it, too. I'm just guessing. Very possibly. I mean, <laughs> like you said, I, there is so much we don't know we're about We're going to learn this. so much from this. When it's all done, unfortunately, oh, a yeah. lot of people are going to die. But when the research analysis is written in 2021, and we go back with 2020 hindsight and look at all of this, we're going to find out. We're so much smarter prepared for the next uh, event. Unfortunately, the, so. the science and the understanding comes too late. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I don't details. even know. I mean, working out a lot of details. I don't even know if we'll know. Uh, we'll know a lot more by 2021. But I think this is going to be something that like SARS, like MERS, uh, we're going to be looking at for five, 10 years to really, really understand it. And there are questions about um, how this coronavirus relates to other coronaviruses. Um, other coronaviruses have been shown to reinfect the same individuals that over time our immunity wanes to some uh, some other uh, less dangerous coronaviruses. And if that's the case, will we have to get, if we come up with a vaccine, will we have to get Revaccinated, probably once a year. Uh, Will we so. have to just like yeah. we do for a flu shot? Exactly. The flu shot takes care of the new strains and the mutations, and we get a new flu shot every year. Yeah. Yeah. So much to learn. It's uh, for science. It's very exciting and interesting for society. It is scary because we like certainty, and we don't have a lot of that right now. Aside from physical distancing and mask wearing and hand washing and putting the lid down on the toilet when you flush. Right. <laughs> right. Well, speaking of toilet lids, um, f to wrap up this section on COVID-19, uh, what's the state of the art and what we know about surfaces versus airborne droplets? Surfaces, this, um, yeah. we've, been, we've been told that the virus can remain on surfaces for a long time, but whether it's viable and whether there's enough of it to infect you and make you sick is questionable. Tell me more. Yeah. So the idea is that the uh, if it if the virus is on a surface, it can stay viable for a long period of time. But we don't know how good that is as a route of infection. All of the tracing and contact uh, studies that have been done to figure out how the disease is transmitted have really uh, found that airborne viral particles are the bigger concern, that it is the air, the droplets in the air that, is, that hang around as a vapor um, for hours after somebody leaves a room. Um, so really airborne stuff is the larger concern. Indoor areas and the air in them are, are more concerning to the health professionals than surfaces. That's not to say surfaces shouldn't be cleaned. Surfaces can still get dirty and can harbor viral particles for very long periods. Um, but the CDC and the World Health Organization have come out and said, you don't have to worry about your mail 
that it don't be so concerned about you know letters that you get in the mail amazon boxes uh, packed by right. who knows who though right you don't know but if you can think about you know how many people have potentially touched that box and did you did you really get the two day shipping or did you let it go did you did you wait a bit and let it come over a week you know if you used the <laughs> the ground transport as opposed to oh, two days shipping yeah. you know maybe it's been a few more days since somebody Forget touched the it the rush shipping but it's yeah <laughs> <laughs> give it some time and then you don't yeah. have to worry about it so much all right. Well, that's it for COVID-19. We've come to the end of the first half of the show. I'm chatting with Dr. Kiki Sanford, and we're going to take a commercial break right now. We'll be back in 60 seconds, folks. Stay with us. Today, our sponsor is Linode. Linode helps you design, develop, and deploy in the cloud. You can build dedicated CPU, distributed applications, hosted services, websites, and CI, CD environments. If it runs on Linux, it runs on Linode. Linode is focused on simplicity, service, and value. Built using the most up-to-date hardware and a next-generation network backbone, Linode allows users to comply with in-country data protection requirements while taking advantage of all of Linode's technology and tools. The goal is to maximize the benefit you receive from your cloud by making it cost-effective to deploy robust compute, storage, and networking services that meet your ever-changing performance needs. Featured are a native SSD storage, a 40 gigabit network, and industry-leading processors. Pick from any of 10 worldwide data centers. And pay for only what you use with hourly billing across all plans and add-on services. 24 by 7 live customer support is always just a phone call away. You'll be able to deploy and maintain your infrastructure simply and cost-effectively. Plus, Linode's tools make it easy to provision, secure, monitor, and back up your cloud. To learn more, visit linode.com slash BGM. That's L-I-N-O-D-E dot com forward slash BGM. All new customers receive a $20 credit. Thanks, Linode, for being our sponsor. We're back. I'm chatting with Dr. Kiki Sanford of This Week in Science. So in part two, I want to ask you about some things that you discussed on your show and your webpage that caught my interest and fascinate me, as they always do. Uh, the first one is birds and long childhoods. Apparently there are big brain birds with long childhoods for the, for the babies, and that seems to do yeah. some good. Yeah, so this is a really interesting, uh, interesting perspective on cognitive development and brain development in animals. Uh, the idea that some animals may have longer childhood developmental periods, similar to our own species, where kids are kids for a very long time under the care of their parents. Um, and, you know, you, you might like to think that it has to do with children being, um, you know, unable to protect themselves and being vulnerable to attack and so needing protection from parents. But there's the other aspect of it that while kids of all species are with their parents, they're also learning from them. They're able to pick up uh, not just in our case, language, birds pick up uh, tool use, young birds who are with their parents for 
a couple of years as opposed to just a couple of months are learning things like uh, interpersonal communication skills. They're learning how to work with things in their environment and how to potentially survive better on their own. And Corvids, uh, Ravens specifically in this study, they, they talked about the fact that their brains are about, uh, are about 2% larger uh, relative to body size than a lot of other bird species. And this, again, is similar to humans. We have this enlarged brain-to-body size ratio, which we think for humans leads to part of our greater cognitive ability. And so is the larger brain this childhood developmental period where there's extended learning from the parents? Is that also why these birds spend more time at home? Does this explain why nerds have to live in their mom's basement? Oh, yeah, yeah. The big brains. That's it. Yep. <laughs> Need some additional developmental learning. I, get that's, I mean, they can now use this as an excuse to convince yeah. their parents to let them stay yeah. in the basement longer. But I'm learning from you. You're, <laughs> you're helping me survive in the real world, Mom. Pretty cool. Yeah. Right. So it's, yeah, and it's not just these corvids. Parrots also, which are other very smart birds, also have these extended childhoods. So, um, you know, maybe, I don't know, if we don't have to think about chimpanzees or bonobos as taking over, if we can't handle it, maybe the corvids and the parrots, the parrots will. Seems to me this is also true in the cat family. From, yes. my, from watching the nature shows, it seems to me like the mother... Jaguar, the mother leopard, keeps the the baby around for about a year until it learns how to hunt for itself. It takes quite a while. Yeah, and maybe it all has to do with not. It's not just the parents protecting the young, but the young learning. Yeah. Well, the next item on my list is my favorite. This is really cool. I've been warning about this for a long time. Los Al- Los Alamos National Laboratory researchers found that in their research with neural networks that when a neural network, which is a computer program that can learn, is put under an intense learning cycle, it becomes unstable. And then when they introduced, well, I'll let you carry on, when they introduced something like sleep, (laughs) like sleep, Something like sleep. It turns out that these very particular, they're spiking neural networks. It's a very particular type of neural network um, that is used to model neural activity is trained to learn in a similar manner to the way that our brains learn that over time, disorganization comes in that, that that these, the, these synthetic neurons these modeled neurons that while they're learning, they're wiring together, they're firing together, but eventually something happens and they become disorganized as opposed to synchronized. And they could not figure out how to fix it in these neural networks until they just tried a last ditch effort and said, well, what if you like the human brain, it needs to sleep. What if it needs to rest? What if it needs something to help it reset? And they they introduced a broad 
frequency um, sound noise signal into the neural network and it worked. So this resetting similar to the brain waves that occur during slow wave uh, sleep in, uh, in humans, it helped these neural networks maintain their cohesion and their synchronization during the time that, uh, that they were not quote unquote resting or sleeping. So the question now, yeah, it's like our, are androids in the future artificially intelligent computers of the future? Well, they need to sleep. Mm-hmm. Let me see if I can <laughs> characterize this. In the course of evolution, Mother Nature imbued us with a characteristic that is a neural network that allows us to learn in our brain. And then we came along as smart human brains and we figured out how to create artificial neural networks. And lo and behold, through evolution, okay. Our neural network required sleep, and so the neural networks that we've created also require sleep. And so it's sort of like a mathematical vindication of the neural network that Mother Nature has imbued us with. Yeah, it seems to be. Yeah. I think it's very, uh, it is. I mean, a lot of the uh, uh, AI work in these neural networks, there's a bit of um, black box kind of what's happening in there and how is it working. And we're modeling the human brain and trying to create these neural networks that are very similar to the networks between neurons in our brain system. Um, But we don't know if it's exactly right. And so it really, yeah, maybe we're getting closer. My wife is an educator and I have a personal story I want to insert into into this. When I grew up, there, it was always summers off. It was just given yeah. that uh, you took summer vacation, you would join the softball league, you, you went to the YMCA, you did all sorts of summer things. And it was a time for resting and refreshing. And then when it came time to go back to school in September, you were eager and the cool weather came and you were refreshed and your brain was ready to absorb. But because of financial changes and economic changes in our country, a lot of school systems puts kids through the school of the year round. And just like sleep, there's no opportunity for the body and the brain to get away from school and to get sunshine and exercise and to have that reset and uh, that neurological uh, refreshing. That's my theory. And so I've always held that it's a bad idea to put the kids in school year round. I know it solves the the daycare problem, but um, yeah. it's, uh, I think it's a bad idea physiologically. That's just my theory. End of subroutine. <laughs> I think I think not just kids. I think we all need time to reset. <laughs> I think we, yeah, those I glorious mean, European six-week vacations. Exactly. <laughs> I, I I have to say, there's a certain side of you know. American exceptionalism and hard work that it kind of go, I don't know. I think we're doing things wrong. <laughs> yeah. We need more vacations, everyone. We need more reset. Our brains, you know, we work hard and we, you know, it, it, there's a lot of stress involved in everyday life. And if we only give ourselves sleep, is that enough? What other, what other ways can we find to reduce that stress, that chronic stress? Skiing. Yes. Standing on top of a, mountain blue sky pushing down the mountain beaches but you don't think about your work <laughs> yeah. yeah let's move on because we're running out of time all right 
One of my next favorite ones was fast radio bursts and missing matter. This has been a puzzle in cosmology for a long time. We've thought that there was matter in the universe we could not account for due to gravitational effects, and we haven't been able to find it, and so this missing matter has been a problem for 30 years. But a recent research study using fast radio bursts has apparently solved the problem. Tell us about that. Yeah, and when we're talking about matter, we're talking about um, the matter of our the stuff we can see, not the dark matter, not the dark energy that makes up like 95% of the universe that we cannot see. Uh, but the missing matter that we're talking about is the baryonic stuff, the stuff Protons that... Protons and neutrons. Yeah, and we have been looking for it, but what we can see, we're still off in our calculations. And we've been like, where is it? It's got to be here somewhere. And over the last 10 years, we've been doing these surveys of the sky, and we have discovered that there are these energetic webs between uh, galaxies, between stars, this kind of, uh, it, it is kind of like a webbing that holds everything together. And we thought, well, maybe, maybe there is matter in there. And this study used fast radio bursts to confirm the idea that the matter that we're missing is just really dispersed out in space. It, we haven't detected it because it's like one or two atoms in like the average office space. So it's such, so, a, such a small difference. It's hard to, to use conventional methods. Yeah. And yeah. These radio been... bursts, though, um, travel through the matter. They become dispersed in a certain way that you can detect. Yeah. 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 It changes the spectrum. Um, and the researcher kind of likened it to how sunlight gets separated in a, in a prism. So right. because the sunlight is... is uh, is kind of separated by the, by the bending of the of the glass through the uh, through the prism. It's very similar that that dispersed matter changes the way that radio signal reaches us. I think it's so cool. The universe presents us with a mystery, and then the universe presents us with the physics we need to figure out the mystery. That is really cool. Yeah, and so we're not missing that matter anymore, but we really still need to figure out about that dark energy and dark matter stuff because yeah, we still have tougher. no clue yeah. <laughs> it is i want to close with one final item that intrigued me because i'm a cat person so the article was dogs appear to have a desire to save their owner from trouble i believe that even though i'm a cat person you put a cat in the back of a pickup truck come to a red light and the cat's going to jump out of the pickup truck head into the woods and say see ya take care <laughs> of yourself I don't know about that. <laughs> well, cats don't seem to be as concerned about their owners as dogs. I, I agree I, with that. But the, a recent study yeah. has confirmed that the, it's apparently innate to the dog's DNA. Yeah. So a new study looking at uh, whether or not dogs were interested in saving their owners from a box <laughs> found that not all dogs want to, but about a third of the dogs were were distressed by the distress of their owners. And uh, what this means is that the dogs have a desire to help their owners and that the dogs actually understand that there is something that 
they want that that needs to be done that their owner is asking for help yeah, and you so see that in tv shows all the time where the dog oh, leads the rescuers to the injured that? owner what's that lassie yeah, yeah that's right <laughs> if they did the same study on cats they'd probably find it was one percent of the cats who had an interest the rest of them were going hey you're not going to feed me i'm going to head out <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think that's one of the one of the interesting things in this study is that they they gave the dogs option between here's a box with food and here's a box with your owner in trouble. Hmm. What are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> but there were more dogs that wanted to protect and save their owner than wanted to eat the food. So I think that's why a lot of people find dogs uh, to be a better companion. Because they're more right. connected to their owner. They're, they're more interested in pleasing the owner, and they're more aggressively affectionate. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, with any study, this is, you know, a, a bunch of different dogs. They probably put out an advertisement for people with dogs to come in, and who knows how connected the owner and that dog were, uh, whether the, the dog was raised from a puppy, whether it was a rescue, whether the owner had, a, you know, adopted it, how nice the owner is to the dog on any occasion, you know, what's that relationship? And if dogs are as socially attuned as so much research is suggesting, I think that also is really going to play into these kinds of results. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. I want to thank you again for right. joining me. Time has gone so fast. We've covered so much material. Thanks for joining me again. I enjoy having you on the show all the time. I always have fun joining you too, John. Thank you so much. Tell the listeners how they can contact you if they wish. They can find me at Dr. Kiki, D-R-K-I-K-I, on Twitter. This Week in Science is my podcast, which you can find at twistwis.org. Great. Folks, you've been listening to John Marcellaro and Dr. Kiki Sanford on the Mac Observer's background mode. We'll see you again next week.